0: 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is our text this morning. Verses 12 through 18 is what we're looking at. And also Acts chapter 6. How many people were with us last week? Raise your hands high. Admit it. Okay. So if you were with us last week, you may be able to uh, clue in the rest here as we get... I'll give you the, the cue that you'll remember from last week. If you were with us last week, you remember that everywhere Paul went, the Apostle Paul, well, a theological gunfight erupted. He would walk into a town like Corinth. Our letter here this morning is to the book of, uh, to the uh, Corinthians. And he would say to people like those in Corinth, you're a sinner. You need a savior. But good news, you have a savior. His name is Jesus. And some of the people that Paul would talk to would receive Jesus as their Lord and their lives would be transformed. The city of Corinth was filled with people like this. Adulterers, prostitutes, pagans, murderers, homosexuals would surrender to Jesus and become new creations. Brand new, sinless, in the eyes of God, people. And Paul would stay a while at equipping this baby church, this group of people that were forgiven and changed by this good news of Jesus Christ. And then... After, sometimes after Paul left town, in rode the Judaizers. There you go. Some of you were paying attention last week. Last week we had, this, we had a fun time. Uh, whenever we mentioned the word, I won't say it yet, those guys that come into town, they are like the nemesis. They are, if it was a comic book, Paul is the hero, and these guys are the, come that, the guys that come in and they always stir up trouble, and their names were the Judaizers. So, every time we said that word, we had to say that. So, these guys, the Judaizers, would come into town and they would say, well, you know, Paul was really great, you know, it's great, the message that he had about Jesus. And Jesus is a really good start. But if you really want to be saved, they would say, you need to become a Jew. You need to keep the Old Testament laws, you need to become kosher, you need to get circumcised. And they would twist the really good news, simple news, that Jesus is enough. We sang the song this morning, all of you is is more than enough that I need. They would turn this really good news into not so good news. For them, for the Judaizers... For the Judaizers to please... (laughs) Never works out the way I want it to. For those guys... To please God meant keeping a list of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts. But for Paul, what pleased God was just staying close to Jesus. Now, which is it for you? In this chapter, Paul is comparing his ministry and he'll he'll talk about it and use words like spirit and life and righteousness with the ministry of the Judaizers. Their ministry was described with words like the law and death and condemnation. He would compare and contrast always the old covenant first in this chapter, chapter three. He would compare the old covenant with the new covenant. The old covenant was the Old Testament, as in will and testament. Those ten commandments that were written on uh, tablets of stone He would compare those that become righteous by keeping a list of rules and animal sacrifice with the new covenant, the New Testament. That Jesus instituted at the Last Supper when he said, my blood is enough to cover for your sin. The new covenant is about being made righteous, not by rules, but by a relationship with Jesus. We'll see the old covenant, though, was passing away and the new covenant was way surpassing. Look with me at verse 7. This is review from last week. But if the ministry of death, he's talking about the law, the old covenant, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory see he's comparing these two things verse 10 for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels he's saying the first was was pretty glorious but it's surpassed by the second the new covenant verse 11 for if what is passing away was glorious what remains is much more glorious let's review i i made a little table for myself on the left hand side those first words of those verses you have the old covenant and on the right hand side you have the new covenant the old covenant was about laws and rules the new covenant is about Jesus the ruler not rules but the ruler the old covenant if you notice paul talks about the ministry of death the new covenant ministry of the spirit the old covenant written and engraved on stones the new covenant back to verse 3 written on the hearts of men the old covenant Was glorious. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Was glorious. But the new covenant, Paul says, is more glorious. The old covenant was called the ministry of condemnation. The new covenant is called the ministry of righteousness. The old covenant was said, Paul said, the glory was good, but it was passing away. And the new covenant says, he says, the glory that remains. If you, uh, If I'm confusing you at all, I encourage you to get the tape from last week because it will help a lot. Uh, We're not going to go back and cover all of that. Basically, what I want you to see here as we begin this morning is that the new covenant that Paul preaches here, the new covenant that Jesus made possible, is clearly, overarchingly superior to the old covenant that the Judaizers preached. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Therefore... He says, in the, considering how much the New Covenant surpasses the Old Covenant, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. How many of you guys were in band or Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts? Stuff where you had to sell stuff. Remember that? All right. Those were the worst days of my life. <laughs> Selling sour balls, candles. I would go up to a door... Hi, I'm with the Cougar High School Marching Band. We're going to be performing at Disney World this May. And I was wondering if you'd want to buy these sour balls or candles or something. (laughs) Anybody else? Nobody relate? But on the other hand, nowadays, if you're a Girl Scout and you have Thin Mints... They, they like accost you walking down the street. Like, Give me those thin mints. How much? When are those thin mints coming out? People stop you on the street. How long until I can buy those thin mints? Listen, in these verses, you guys are like, how is it, in the world does this tie in? In these verses, the Judaizers are selling sour balls and candles. But Paul is selling thin mints. <laughs> but they're good for you. That's why he could say, look at verse 12. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. The word boldness there means free, a fearless confidence. But it also means, the word is parousia. It means open, frankly, without concealment. It means without ambiguity, no circumlocution, nothing nothing to try to, okay, maybe I can say this in a different way that won't be offensive. Paul just laid it out. He said, this is the way it is. See, one of the criticisms that Paul faced in Corinth, you know it if you've been with us, was the idea that he was simple. They didn't like the fact that Paul was simple. Corinth was a town that loved orators, sophistry, cleverness of speech. And Paul says, I don't need all that clever stuff to sell this gospel. Paul says, I have nothing to hide here. There is nothing to hide. Look at verse 13. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Paul says, I'm able to speak even more boldly than Moses. Now, you you look at this and did Moses have something to hide? Well, we talked about it last time, last week. Nothing moral, no moral failures there that Moses was hiding, but he was veiling something. He was covering something up. A long story short, I'll try to catch you up. Exodus 34, Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant. And his face is shining. He doesn't even know it. It's like, hey, Moses, uh, your face is shining. And people are are frightened at first, but eventually they come near. And we saw last time, at, at first reading, it looks like Moses puts a veil on his face to keep them from Seeing, uh, seeing the glory to to keep them from blinding their eyes if you will but we saw last time upon more careful examination it was actually the opposite it wasn't to keep them from seeing the glory it was to keep them from seeing the glory fading look at verse 13 again unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away see if you look back at the, that chapter you can probably not now but Exodus 34 You can look back and see that every time after this, Moses would, he'd put a veil after they saw his face glow. He'd say, see my face glowing? I put a veil on. And then when he would go back up the mountain, he would take the veil off. He'd get a spiritual suntan. And he would come back down the mountain and would say, look at my face. Before, he didn't veil it. He didn't come down the mountain with his face glowing. I mean, he did with the, with the veil on. He came down the mountain with his face unveiled. It was like as proof that he had been in the presence of the Lord. Imagine waiting around for Moses to return. You're sleeping in your tent. It's 3 a.m. A human torch walks by. Oh, Moses is back. He would come and make sure that you saw that his face was glowing, and then he would put the veil back on. The veil was not to protect the children of Israel from the glowing face of Moses. The veil was so that they wouldn't see the glory fading, that they could not look back at the end of what was passing away. Now, let's look at verse 12 again, and notice the words that I stress. Verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, Remember that. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily. Remember that. At the end of what was passing away. These verses talk about three things. Great boldness, looking steadily, and a shining face. Can you think of any New Testament scripture besides the one we talked about last week? Any New Testament passage that reminds you of these things, great boldness, looking steadily, and a shining face. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Some of you guys are going, oh, now I get it. Stephen. Let me tell you about Stephen. Acts chapter 6. Stephen was a young man, and when we come to Acts chapter 6, he is, well, he's a guy waiting tables for the Lord. It's as simple as that. He's got no doctor of divinity, he's got no credentials. He's just a gopher at a burger barn, pretty much. But listen to this, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. This little guy did these great things, verse 9. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him seized him and brought him to the council. So. Stephen, our dishwashing, order taking hero, finds himself in front of the highest religious court in Israel. What's going to happen? Verse 13. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, what's that word? Looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of of an angel. How does the face of an angel look? Well, many times in the Bible, angels are described as shining figures. Glorious. Seems to me that Stephen's face was glowing. And in verse 15, it says that they were looking steadfastly. That's the exact same word as in our text. They were looking steadfastly. And the other word that we talked about... There was the shining, there was the looking steadfast, and the other word was boldness. Is there any boldness here in Stephen? Yeah, I think so. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest said to our little dishwasher guy, Are these things so? And he said, listen to this boldness. Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when, when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he goes on, this little burger barn waiter, goes on to give the high and mighty, the, those high and mighty people a history lesson. He's basically, listen up. You see the boldness here? Now look down at verse 51. It's one long history lesson that this guy is giving these religious people. Um, People, Look at verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Okay, pretty bold. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, Jesus, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Yeah, I'd say there's a little boldness there. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, you can make your way back to our text. Actually, no, no, stay, stay right there. Um, You've got to follow me here. What was the argument of the Judaizers? Boom, boom, boom. Their argument that they began last week was this. Look, you can't, they would say to Paul, you can't dispute how glorious the the Old Testament is, the Old Covenant. It came down from on high, and Moses' face shone. They would say, basically, let's see your New Covenant do that. Well, we talked about it last week. The Mount of Transfiguration pretty much trumps that. But, But here's another example. Stephen. Little Stephen. He's not a CEO. He's not a mover and a shaker. He's not even an apostle He's a guy who made sure that little old ladies got their fair share of the food. That's what he did. What can make a waiter, a teenager, perhaps, what can make somebody like that that bold? What can make somebody like that shine that brightly? Look at verse 55. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. But he, that is, our hero here, Little guy being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. What made him bold? Jesus. Jesus was right there with him. What makes you bold? To have a real personal relationship, a living relationship with the living God. See, this is the beauty of the new covenant. This is what Paul's trying to get at is Jesus is with you. It's not a list of rules. A list of rules could never make you that bold. Could never make you speak boldly in the face of these things. A list of rules can't make you burn brightly. But when you look steadily at Jesus, then people begin to look steadily at you. As you speak boldly, as you burn brightly. Look at verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The guy who's writing these letters. He he will become Paul. We'll see this in a little bit. Verse 59. And they stoned Stephen... As he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Any question in your mind, at least not in mine, that Stephen burned brightly. He shone brightly. But here's my question. If Stephen shone that brightly, how come Paul couldn't see it? I mean, how come Paul and all of his henchmen they still went on trying to snuff out this light. Well, now you can go back to Second Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3, we're up to verse 14. Paul says, but their minds were blinded. Whose minds? We have to look at verse 13. The children of Israel's minds were blinded. He's talking about the Jewish nation. He says, For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. The reason Saul didn't get it, even though it burned brightly in front of him, right there in Stephen, the reason he didn't get it is because his mind was blinded. It's interesting, in my uh, quiet time this morning, I, I just happened to read Isaiah 6. This is the very prophecy that Jesus... Quoted in Matthew 13, where he's explaining, people ask him, why do you use parables? Jesus, why is it that you 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 seem to use the parables, this kind of uh, different way of saying something? And he explains, Matthew 13, verse 13, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, Isaiah 6. Which says, hearing you will hear and and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. And then Jesus turns to his disciples, his own children, like you. And he says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Paul says that same thing is still happening. Some people are burning brightly and other people are blind. He says, for until this day, in our text, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. It says, until this day. That means it's still happening. If any of you have Jewish friends and neighbors, these are God's chosen people. He has not given up on them. But how do you explain it? When you, when you open up Isaiah 53 to them, and you read verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That was in Isaiah 53, centuries before Jesus walked the earth. How is it you can, you can tell someone who knows the Old Testament back and forward, you can say, don't you see it? Don't you see it? That's Jesus. And you look at Psalm twenty two, written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even thought of. And and Jesus, in Psalm twenty two, the words go like this I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. They pierced my hands and my feet. They look and stare. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. You read those, and you say, Can't you see it? Don't you see it? And the answer is, no. They can't see it. Yet. They can't see it until Jesus takes away the veil. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. In Luke 24, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, there's these two guys on the road to Emmaus, two disciples, and a In that that, uh, section, it says that their eyes were restrained. They were blind. I mean, they they were physically, they could see, but their eyes were restrained. They They couldn't figure out that the person that they were walking up to was Jesus. And he says to them, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're just going on. And this is a great example of holy irony. He asked them, what are you talking about? And they're like, are you the only guy in the land that hasn't heard this? Well no, he was the only guy in the land that actually knew everything that was going on luke twenty four twenty seven it says and after he 'd walked with these folks for a while, he said at the beginning he, and beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What he did what there was take away the veil. This is why if you 're looking for something practical here. This is why if you're praying, if you're, if you're wanting to witness to somebody, your first step always needs to be prayer. You can talk to your blue in the face, and unless Jesus comes and takes away the veil, it's, it's not going to do anything. Jesus comes, he's the one who takes away the veil. The prayer of, of you and me this morning should be, Lord, take away the veil. Show my friend show my husband, show my kids. Show this person how it really is. Show them the truth. Give them ears to hear and eyes to see. Second Corinthians chapter 3, now verse 15. But even to this day, Paul says, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Of course, the, the greatest example of this is Paul's own conversion, isn't it? He'd been a Pharisee among Pharisees. Remember, what's the context? The context today is, hey, does the law save you? Or is it a relationship? Paul had tried the whole law thing. He says, I'm a Pharisee among Pharisees. I jumped through every legal hoop there, there was. It's like I was um, circumcised on the eighth day. I was, was born of this tribe and everything lines up. He tried it. He tried to attain the glory of the old covenant. And where did it lead him? A ministry of death. He got really good at taking Christians out and having them killed. He was a minister of death, a minister of condemnation. He was traveling on his way to Damascus. Most of you know the story. He encounters what? A shining light, brighter than the noonday sun. And he was blinded. Acts chapter 9. Three days later, what happened? Three days later, A man uh, named Ananias came to him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. When Paul says in our text the word blinded, it's the same word. The word blinded is the same word here as scales. Something like scales fell off of his eyes and he received his sight at once. He arose and was baptized. Before this, every day of his life, when Moses was read, Saul thought he got it. He, he, oh, I get, I get this. Oh, yeah. Here's, the Old Testament says this, and this means I have to work really hard. I've got to do this. I've got to make sure and get this done, and then God will be happy with me. And if you had to pick someone in the whole world who would not get it, not ever get it, if you ask any Christian around there, hey, who's the one guy who's never going to be saved? Saul. But Jesus came and took away the veil verse 16 nevertheless when one turns to the lord the veil is taken away now the lord now the lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty y'all there's great theological truth here and in support of the trinity basically saying that the spirit is god the lord is the the Articles actually aren't even there when you read it in the original language. It basically says, now the Lord Spirit, and where the Spirit Lord is, there is liberty. There's some great stuff in here about the Trinity and supporting the Trinity, but my mind is already kind of sore, kind of hurting, and maybe yours is too. So we're going to go only to the context here. The context of this verse again is, how do you become righteous? How do you live a righteous life in front of God, right? So let me boil it down as practical as I can. The word Lord there is Kyrios in today's vernacular. It's boss. Boss. One in charge. So let me read it this way. Now the one in charge is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Basically, Paul is saying, my boss, the one I take orders from, is not a list of rules. It's The Spirit. My boss is the Spirit. My boss is the Spirit, which is the same as Jesus. Paul says, if you go back to, I think it's verse 7, he says, Look, it's not about the letter, but of the Spirit. Paul is saying, my boss is the Spirit of the living God. Can you say that? My boss is the Spirit of the living God. If you can really say that, then I know that you are really happy. You're really happy because this verse says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That means that your life is not described by the things that you don't do. So many Christians, their life is described by the things that they don't do. I don't drink, right? I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. If you are led by the Spirit, if your boss is the Spirit, that doesn't describe your life. If you're led by the Spirit, your life is not even described by the things you have to do. Not the negatives, but the positives that you have to do. In other words, well, I have to go to church, I have to tithe, I have to serve in children's ministry. If your boss is the Spirit, you will still do all those things. Not because you have to. Because you get to. Paul says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So Paul says, look, my boss is the spirit. How would you finish that sentence? Would it be my boss is myself? My boss is my own pleasure. My boss is what's good for me. Would it be my boss is my wife? Would it be my boss is the law or is it my boss is the spirit? The one that I serve, the one that I listen to, the one that directs my path is the spirit of the living God, Jesus. Now, I hope by now that you are as convinced as I am that the new covenant is much, much more glorious than the old covenant. I hope by now you are convinced that the old covenant, though it was good, is not enough to save you. No, in fact, we talked about it last week. The Old Covenant was designed to kill you. (laughs) Designed for you to say, I'm going to try to be righteous on my own, and you find out after beating your head against the wall that you cannot do it. The Old Covenant, the old law, was designed to kill you that Jesus might raise you up again. I hope you see that legalism is no way to approach God. But, maybe this morning the one thing that keeps you from abandoning legalism is this fear. Maybe you are fearful that if you abandon the rules and the regulations, if you abandon your self-righteousness, that you will become unrighteous. Maybe for you, you feel like the rules and the regulations are like a lifeline. They are keeping you from being a total heathen dog. I mean, maybe you're thinking, if this new covenant is so great... How does it work? I mean, how does it make me righteous? Okay, I get that it makes me righteous in God's eyes, in a legal sense, in a positional sense, but how does it make me be a better person today? How do I become righteous practically? Look at verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. First, look at those first three words, verse 18, but we all. All, that means anybody who is a Christian living by the Spirit. Not just one. See, the whole thing was the the argument of the Judaizers. Wow, you are paying attention. Their whole argument was, look, the law is awesome because it came through Moses, this one man, and his face shone. Paul says here, everybody gets to do that now. Everybody gets to walk into the presence of God. Moses had access to God, and it made his face shine. You guys have access to God. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. See, there was another veil. We've been talking a lot about veils, right? What about the veil in the temple? You can read about it in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. This veil of the temple, it was huge. I forget, like 80 feet, maybe more high. And it was thick, really thick. And when Jesus was crucified, when the earthquake happened, that veil that kept all of the unrighteous sinners out of the presence of God was torn in two. Before that it was priests, if you, you had to be a really good priest, it had to be like your one day of the year, you had to have the exact right sacrifice, and, and even then they put a rope on your on your leg so that when you walked in, if you messed up, they could drag your dead carcass out. Not much access to God for an unrighteous people. But when Jesus died, it was torn and it wasn't torn from the bottom, it was torn from the top place that only God could reach. It was too thick for any man to do it. It was God saying, come in. Jesus did it. He paid the price. Now you all have a, a perfect sacrifice. You can come into my presence. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly, there's that word again, to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 18 again, Paul says, But we all, with unveiled face, just like Moses was in God's presence, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Back then, a mirror was made of burnished brass. They didn't have the technological advances we have. It was basically as shiny as they could make it, a brass. And you would smooth it out as much as you could, and you could see vaguely, generally, what you looked like. How many of you looked in a mirror this morning? That explains it. (laughs) I looked in one. It's the best I could do. Sorry. Look, a, a mirror shows you what state you are in and how much work needs to be done. But what if there was a magic mirror? And just by looking into this mirror steadfastly, looking steadfastly at this mirror, you would get better looking. How much would you pay for that? And then who would you give it to? Don't don't point at anybody. The trick of this mirror is that when you look into it, you don't see yourself. You see Jesus. Look at verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image The image that we see, which is Jesus from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. See, there's a mirror. And when you look in it, you see a partial reflection of Jesus. And the more you look into it, the more you become like him. You don't really do much of anything other than you look steadfastly into this magical mirror. You clip this or that. You take away this or that. The main thing is that you spend time looking into this mirror. You know what the mirror is? You're holding it in your lap. James 1 likens the word of God to a mirror. The mirror is the word of God. And in it, what? You see Jesus. The guys on the road to Emmaus found that out. He says, okay, look here. This talks about Jesus. Okay, look at here. This talks about the Lord. And after he left, they're like, that was him. Every time we look into the word, we see Jesus and we are being transformed closer to the image that we see. You guys, this is why it's really important to come to church, to look into the word, to spend time in his word. But here's something else. This is really important, too, because this will really mess you up if you don't get it. What do you see when you look in that mirror? When you look into the mirror that we're talking about, that's in your lap. Do you see a set of rules and regulations? If you see a set of rules and regulations, you will be transformed into what you see. You will see, you will be transformed into a minister of death, a minister of condemnation. You will become a hard taskmaster, but if you see Jesus in the, the volume of the book, you will be transformed into what you see. You will become more like him. You'll be righteous. You'll be holy, but you'll also be merciful and forgiving like Jesus. It's important, I think, again, this is a great reason to come to church. Whether you think so or not, you are doing most of what you can do to become transformed by this spending time with him. Now the question is, what we're going to talk about in a minute, are you applying it? But I was thinking, how appropriate it is that we meet in an exercise room filled with mirrors. Actually, behind all these curtains are mirrors. People come in and, you know, I've actually been here. You know, I try not to visit a gym ever. No, But, you know, they come in and they're inspecting, right? They're looking in a mirror, trying to have themselves look better. And it's interesting to me because we, too, are standing before a mirror this morning... And we are slowly being transformed into the image of Christ. Sometimes, you know, you can look and you go, you know, I read my Bible this morning. How come I'm not a saint all of a sudden? No, it's, it's an incremental thing, like exercise. It's from glory to glory. Verse 18, but we all with unfailed face, uh, unveiled face, excuse me, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. One more thing. We're getting really close here. Notice it says from glory to glory. It doesn't say from glory to backsliding to glory to backsliding to glory. You don't have to backslide. That's not the original intent. It's not ordained for us to backslide. Not from glory to backsliding to glory to backsliding to glory. No, from glory to the next incremental glory. If you will stay in the word, if I will stay in the word, if we will commit to applying the word to our lives, you will be changed. Pretty slow. Slower than I'd like to change, I think. But I'm a little bit in control of that. How much time do I spend looking into the mirror of the word? I want you to notice one last thing. Just kind of looking back at this whole message. What was it that made Stephen bold? Looking at Jesus having Jesus come alongside and empower him, the, the spirit within him, it says, he was, he was emboldened by the spirit. Now, what was it that, who opened the eyes of the guys on the road to Emmaus? It was Jesus. Who took the scales off of Paul's eyes? It was Jesus. Jesus only. That's what we ended the message last week. Jesus only. He will make you, Bold. And he can make things clear, like he did for those in Emmaus. And he can change you from the inside out, just like he did with Paul. I want to challenge you this morning, if you are one who tends to want to cling on to the list of rules, to give up the list, and to follow the ruler. That's what Paul's saying.